by virtue of his life that was without sin, and that his death that was for sin, and his resurrection which vindicated all that he did on the cross, whereby you demonstrated to the whole world that you had accepted the sacrifice that he had made for the sins of others. We thank you this evening for your grace. We thank you for your dealings with your people in the Old Testament and how they too were saved by grace as they looked to the Christ who would come. They had many uh, shadows, they had many uh, ceremonies that pointed them forward to the reality, the substance that was and is Jesus, the Christ of God. We thank you that they saw him from afar off in the great um, feasts of the Old Testament and then in the sacraments of circumcision uh, and the Passover. Uh, we uh, thank you that they also saw him in the various sacrifices that they had to offer uh, in order uh, to uh, cover over their sin before you knowing, however, all the time that it is not by the blood of bulls and goats that we or they could be saved from their sin. So we thank you this evening for the Lord Jesus, fully man, perfectly man. Uh, we thank you that he had no sin, no guile, no deceit was found in his mouth. And we thank you that it is by him that we are saved. We thank you for gathering us here this evening. We thank you again for this place where we meet. And we pray that you would be with us now as we seek uh, to uh, focus our minds uh, on preparation for coming uh, to the Lord's table, which is uh, the uh, memorial meal um, that Christ established to commemorate his death and to anticipate his coming again when the marriage supper of the Lamb will take place, the whole church throughout all ages gathering together uh, with Christ uh, and eating and drinking uh, with him uh, in that eternal kingdom. And so, Lord God, we pray that you would bless us now as we come together in this place. We pray, O oh God, too, uh, for the service in Clough Mills this evening where the other sacrament, the sacrament of baptism, is being administered to the infant daughter of Joel and Abigail. We pray for your blessing upon them uh, and uh, upon uh, their family uh, as they gather there this evening. We pray that uh, there too, uh, that uh, there would be um, uh, a recognition that this, that sacrament too is a picture of your salvation in Christ. The outward washing with water signifying that inward washing that is necessary of the Holy Spirit if someone is to be made new. Lord, we pray for your blessing then to be upon them as also upon us here. And we pray that you would forgive our many sins for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, our communion season, and for our communion season, we want to uh, look at this section, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through to 10. Uh, I'm just back from the minister's conference, uh, and our whole 
uh, conference was focused on union with Jesus Christ and the blessings that come uh, to men and women, boys and girls, by virtue of us being joined to Christ. And that underlies uh, what Paul writes here in this passage. Uh, I'm not going to um, focus on directly on union with Christ uh, in this uh, communion series, but rather on the phrase that is repeated twice uh, in the section that we read. And it is the phrase, you are saved. Uh, it may be translated uh, as you have been saved. And that is a legitimate translation. Uh, because salvation uh, is past. Uh, it is in the past. Um, it has begun at a point in the past. But salvation is also present. You are saved. You are being saved now. Uh, as you uh, abide by faith in Christ. And then there's a future dimension to salvation as well. You will be saved. Um, and the fullness of our salvation we will only enter into when Christ comes again in his glory. So, um, I, I want us to look at it uh, in the literal translation, which it is. Um, the uh, verb is, you are, and then the participle, saved, is added onto it by Paul. Two words. You are saved. Uh, and that's the great, um, the greatest blessing uh, that God can bestow upon any person. Uh, and if this evening you don't know that salvation uh, and you're inclined to follow other things, Perhaps boys and girls or young people, uh, you have your sights set on a vocation or career. Uh, maybe you have um, aspirations for the kind of car you will drive, uh, the kind of house you will live in, maybe the kind of person you will marry. Those are gifts of God, but they are not the greatest gift. All those gifts will pass away. All those other gifts are material and temporal but here we come to the gift that is spiritual and the gift that is eternal. The gift that is central and essential if we are to know God now and if we are to be with God forever and ever when we die. You are saved. And the um, table that we come to on the Lord's Day is a table for those who are saved and only for those who are saved. And it is a table that illustrates to our eyes what we've already received and believed in our hearts. Uh, it portrays salvation uh, as the bread is broken, symbolizes the broken body, as the wine symbolizes the shed blood of Christ. Uh, it is the visual reminder of our salvation that it is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now we want to look then uh, at this phrase, you are saved 
or you have been saved, you will be saved. Uh, and we want to look at it and ask uh, a number of questions in our various addresses on the Lord's, uh, uh, over this communion season, sorry. And the question tonight is, you are saved from what? You are saved from what? Um, that lies, um, that is a, an obvious and natural question to ask. Uh, if you were to go downtown tonight in Carrick Fergus, and you were to stop everybody that you meet in the street, and you were to say to them, I am saved, I guarantee that there would be at least one, maybe several, hopefully many, who would ask you, saved from what? In other words, what do we mean? Uh, what is it that we need to be saved from? And that's where Paul begins, here in chapter Chapter 1, he has uh, delved into the great doctrines from eternity that undergird salvation, but now he's coming down to the personal experience of salvation. Uh, and so you're saved from what? And it's very evident what Paul says here. Look uh, at verse chapter 2, verse 1. I, I hope in your Bibles the words he made alive are in italics because they're not actually there at this point. They come later and they've been put in here in verse 1 or brought forward in verse 1 so that it reads to make sense. But literally it is, and you being dead in trespasses and sins. So Paul is saying you are saved from what? You're saved from trespasses and sins. And the word trespasses here is the same word as we have in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our trespasses. It's the idea of transgression. It's the idea of breaking through the boundaries that God set for us to live within. We think in particular of uh, and particularly of the commandments. Uh, and it's a bit like, uh, and I've used this illustration before, boys and girls, in your school grounds, there will be a sign, almost certainly, which says, no trespassing. Trespassers will be prosecuted. In other words, if you cross over this boundary and come into these grounds, you are going to come under the penalty of the law of our land. Uh, and that's what this word means here in chapter 2, verse 1. We have crossed over the boundaries that God has set and we have come under the penalty of his law, of his holy character, of his righteous nature, of his just judgment. That's what Paul is saying to these Ephesians. Save from what? From your breaking through God's boundaries. Um, and we see that, of course, in the Ten Commandments. We see it in Genesis chapter 3. Remember, God had said, You shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what did Adam and Eve do? They trespassed. They broke through that boundary. The word sins, then, is the idea more of 
missing the mark. And the picture that I like to think of here is, and I've used it before, of someone playing darts. And when you're playing darts, I'm sure, George, you played darts as a boy. You weren't aiming for the one on the board. You were aiming for the bullseye, the 50. Uh, and But how hard it is to hit that bullseye. And there's so many alternatives and options that you hit around it. You, it's a very difficult thing to hit the bullseye. Uh, and so, um, again, the idea here is that God has set a standard that we're to live to, and we do not hit it. And we are all over the place, all around it, but we don't reach it. So, that's what we're saved from. Trespasses and sins. And Paul then unpacks that a little bit more to show us the glorious and wonderful nature and aspect um, of this reality of being saved from trespasses and sins. And he does that by telling us four things about sin. Sin that you are saved from. First of all, sin's deadliness. Sin is a deadly disease. Sin spiritually kills. Isn't that what Adam and Eve were told? The day you eat of the tree, you shall surely die. Did they die, Rosemary? They did. In what sense did they not die, Laius? In what sense did they not die? Anybody be able to help us? Physically. Physically. But they died spiritually. How did they die spiritually? What did they do as a sign that they died spiritually? They hid from God. Their whole union and communion with God was broken. And so... Um, they died. And so, as a result of that, Paul is able to say, you being dead in trespasses and sins. That is the way you were born. That is the way I was born. That is the way every last person that has been born of a man and a woman coming together in a sexual union has been born. There's not a single person that is the product of a marital or a physical union that is not dead in sin at the moment of conception. Isn't that why David says, I was born in sin and conceived in iniquity. So, uh, sin's deadliness it's a deadly disease. It's a killer disease. Now, if someone's dead, what can they not do? Jenny. They won't what? They can't come back to life again. That's exactly right for themselves. Will they be able to open their eyes? Can they open their eyes and look at you? No, they can't. 
Will the dead body speak to you? No, it won't. Will the dead body get up and walk? No, it won't. The dead person can do absolutely nothing for themselves. You see what Paul is saying? We can do absolutely nothing for ourselves to get ourselves out of our sin. We are dead, being dead. It's a present participle. It's an ongoing, continuing state born into that we live in and we continue in. And all around us we can have the revelation of God the heavens declare the glory of God. God can be dealing with us in his providence and sending hard things into our lives. We can be reading the scriptures and hear the scriptures preached and all of us have had that experience. And when we were dead, none of those things made a button of difference. Didn't make a button of difference to us. So, sin's deadliness, it makes us powerless and helpless um, to do anything. You don't have to learn to sin. Um, Jenny, Natalie, other children here tonight, you didn't have to learn to tell lies. You didn't have to see your parents telling lies or, or um, uh, having a fight to end up in a fight with your brother or sister. That is who we are because of sin. It um, has rendered us powerless. It has taken the life out of us. So, you are saved. You are saved when Jesus Christ comes and that's why um, it says later, made alive. We had to be made alive. And then we began to see the heavens declare the glory of God. When God made you alive, you sat up and took notice of his word and your need to repent and to believe. When God made you alive, you began to say, oh, that was the hand of God upon me there for good or the hand of God was upon me there to correct me and to chasten me. So, um, you have been saved, or you are saved, from sin's uh, deadening uh, estate, or dead estate. Now, it's important that we recognize that. We are saved. We're made alive. You're no longer someone who is in the realm of sin where it has got this power and control over your life. You've been brought out of that deadness into a state of life. That's important for us to grasp and to understand so that now we can uh, and should overcome sin and resist sin. And Paul talks about, in another place in Romans, dying to sin. 
So it has application to you. You are saved tonight from the deadly effects and influence of sin. Is that not good news? Should we not smile about that? Should we not be happy about that? Yes, we should. But then let's remember that the non-Christians who are living around us, the non-Christians in your family, um, those that you work with who are non-Christians, realize they are dead. And they will not be saved until they are made alive. Until life is imparted to them by God from outside. That's why it's so important that we pray and keep on praying for non-Christians in our families and in the workplace and in our neighborhood. Sin's um, deadly influence. But then let's notice, secondly, you are saved from sin's dominion. Sin's dominion. Paul goes on in verse 2 and he says to these Christians, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh. You see, being dead in sin, we're dominated. And Paul mentions here three ways in which um, sin dominates. Uh, he talks about the flesh, the lusts of the flesh. That's the lusts of the sinful nature, the desires of the sinful nature. It's a bit like this, boys and girls. It's not just that you are dead, but you are also in chains. So imagine a dead person in chains. And you're chained to your own lusts. And maybe your mother says to you, well, why did you do that? You've done something wrong. Because I wanted to. That's the flesh. Because I wanted to. Um, and then the world. Maybe sometimes in school you've got into trouble and the teacher brings you and the others together uh, and they say, well, what got into you? What was it that made you act in that way, do that thing? And you will say, others. I went with the crowd. And that's what Paul talks about here when he says, according to the course of this world. You see, the non-Christian world around us, it exerts, uh, it exerts an ongoing, dominating influence upon the non-Christian. And it says, live in this way. Do this thing. Um, that's why the world supports immorality. That's why the world defends 
homosexuality. Because that's the course of the world. Um, and all other manner of evil. It's the pattern of a world that has been affected by sin. So, Paul says sin dominates, it chains people um, uh, by what comes out of us, our flesh. It brings us into chains by the influences around us. And then there's another one. He talks about the prince of the power of the air. Here's another chain that holds people in their sin. The devil. Not just our flesh. I wanted to do it. Not just the world which says, you know, follow the crowd. But the devil, who actually was the one that tempted the first man and the first woman into sin. And he has this, this um, overarching power over the non-Christian. They don't realize it. They wouldn't acknowledge it. But that is the reality. Uh, they're a bit like, the, the devil is a bit like the jailer. So if you imagine the, the dead body, the dead person, and chains to themselves, and chains to the world, and then the one who holds the keys to the chains is the devil. He holds the keys. Um, and so he, uh, and he has put these chains upon, uh, upon uh, the human race. So do you see what Paul's saying? You are saved. You're saved. From sin's dominion. Not only have you been made alive. In your salvation. But the chains have fallen off. The chains have been removed. The chain of self which says. I want to do this and I must do this. That chain is broken. So that none of us need necessarily. We cannot say of necessity that we must do wrong. It's a choice. Um, and we can stand against the world. Because the world now no longer has dominion. It's Christ that is dominion in our lives. Uh, and we can overcome the devil. Why? Because Christ has overcome the devil. The one who saved us. So, Paul uses the language, I'm sorry, Christ himself used the language of taking the strong man and binding him up. And that's what Christ did with the devil. The devil actually, as far as you and I are concerned as Christians, he's a chain on him. And there, uh, there he's only, he cannot have that dominating ongoing sway and influence upon our lives. And if we, if he has that, we are giving it to him wrongly. Or if we're saying, I can't stop doing this. We're giving the flesh an overarching power which it no longer has. Or if we say, I can't stand against the world. 
It's too powerful for me. We are wrong. And we're giving the world an influence that it should not have and does not have for those who are in Christ. So, you're saved from sin's deadness. You're saved from sin's dominion. Let's notice then, thirdly, you're saved from sin's defilement. Sin's defilement. This comes out um, in Paul's words when he talks about the lusts of our flesh. The desires of the flesh. That's, those are the words that lust is a word which, which indicates defiled. Dirty. And you see, our sin before God defiled us. It makes us unclean. The non-Christian. The person who's not saved. They are in the sight of God unholy, unclean. They're defiled. But what are we told about Jesus Christ? He was harmless, holy and undefiled. And so you are saved. Wonderfully, we're saved from sin's defilement. That um, um, on that uncleanness, uh, that dirtiness, that filthiness in the sight of a holy God, it is removed again by Christ, by Christ. Now the Um, theologians and preachers of the past generations uh, they rightly draw our attention to what we call total depravity total depravity that doesn't mean that the non-Christian is as bad as they could be it doesn't mean they're at the lowest that they could ever stoop to. But it means that the non-Christian is affected in the entirety of their person. The totality of their person. And that's why Paul here uh, talks about uh, of the mind and the flesh, the nature. So he's talking about the totality of the human person. In other words, there's no inch, there's not a millimetre of the human being or of human personality that is not being corrupted by sin. There's no clean places. Okay? It's a bit like this building four weeks ago, six weeks ago. Could you find a clean spot you went to make a cup of tea, you ladies. The first thing you had to do was clean away the dust and the dirt that we men created. We're very good at that, aren't we? As men, creating dust and dirt. Uh, and there wasn't a clean spot. Well, that's what human nature is like in sin. There's not a clean spot anywhere to be found. 
defiled through and through. And you see, that then means, and it just builds this picture, that there is nothing in you or me that God should accept. Nothing. Um, I was at a funeral today, and there were two singings. Uh, Psalm 23, and uh, Rock of Ages left for me. And as the second um, singing was taking place, I was reflecting and meditating upon the words, uh, as I seek to do, not taking part in the singing uh, out of conviction, but I thought, this hymn is absolutely spot on in the truth that it's teaching. Um, you know, um, what's the, the words of the third verse? Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. Nothing in my hand I bring. It's nothing. Defiled, you see. Oh, you are saved? Smile about that. It's a great thing to be saved. The greatest blessing that God can give us. Saved from sin's deadly power. Deadening influence. Saved from sin's dominion. Its rule. Its domination. The chains have been broken. As I think it was Wesley talked about in one of his sins. And they've fallen off. Um, sin's defilement. It's taken away. Psalmist talks about wash me and make me clean. And that's what he means. Psalm 51. I shall be clean. Um, so that I'm holy in God's sight. And then, let's notice finally, and this is where sin ultimately leads to, we are saved, you are saved from sin's damnation. You are saved from sin's damnation. Sin damns. Sin takes people to hell. And every life that is dead in sin and dominated by sin and defiled by sin where Christ has not come and made that life alive that life is damned for all eternity. Because God cannot, God being holy, that present continuous characteristic of God, being holy from eternity, being holy to eternity, he cannot accept sin. He cannot look upon sin. That is why his face was turned away from Christ on the cross. He couldn't look upon even his eternal, beloved, sinless son by nature whilst he bore the sins of us and others. And Christ was damned in those hours on the cross. He was taking damnation upon himself 
for you, for me, for us. And so that's why Paul says here, and whereby nature, children of wrath, just as the others. We were under God's holy, just, eternal, righteous, and every other word that you want to add in there, adjective, wrath. That's what sin does. It damns. It provokes. It evokes from a holy God his wrath. He is of pure eyes and to behold iniquity. There is judgment that awaits every sinner. There's a judgment that awaits every criminal, every terrorist, every petty thief, every liar, and every other sin that you and I know comes out of our hearts. There is judgment if that state of sin is not broken and reversed and altered. But the wonder of the gospel is you are saved. You are saved. And you and I need to have a clear, clear grasp what we are saved from. The deadness that sin brings, the dominion that sin brings, the defilement that sin brings, the damnation that sin brings. You are saved from all of those. Is that not wonderful? Is that not glorious? Is that not the best news in the whole world? And as we come to the Lord's table, let us remember what we are saved from. Let's rejoice in what we are saved from. Let's give thanks what we are saved from. And if there's anyone here tonight, boys and girls, you've been brought up in the covenant, you've been committed to the Lord by your parents, and God has made promises to you, but you individually, each one of you, as an individual, you need to embrace the God of that promise. You need to embrace the Christ that you've been given to, and promised to, and that you see in your parents, and you learn of from your parents. You need to embrace him. So that you're saved from sin's deadness and dominion and defilement and doom. Let's rejoice. Let's remember. Let's give thanks. But also let's examine ourselves.
if we have been made alive, if we are saved, then there should be no sin that dominates your life. Laziness, neglect of prayer, of the word, of worship, of the church, neglect of holiness, failure to love, failure to obey, none of those things should dominate. None of us should be content with sin's defilement, that there's sin still within us and makes us unclean. We should be grieving continually when we sin. And we need always to hold before us the great reality that sin, if it has not been broken, and if it is not being broken in your life and my life, it's going to bring damnation. You are saved, Paul says. Can you sit here tonight and say, I am saved? You can look back to a moment in time when these things that were true of you and of me were changed. Can you say tonight, I am being saved now. Today, I'm living as a saved man. I'm living as a saved woman. I'm living as a saved young person. Because only if you can say that have you hope and reason to say that I will be saved in the future. You are saved. And we'll come on Sabbath morning to think more about how it is that we are saved through Christ. Let's pray. We thank you, Almighty God, for this great and glorious gospel. This good news. This news that causes us to rejoice that causes our hearts to leap within us with joy because without this good news we are dead we are dominated we're defiled and we are damned but thank you that by Christ all who repent all who believe, not just at some point in the past, but every single day of their lives, of their remaining sin, that all who do that are saved by Christ. Thank you for the sacrament which portrays this to our eyes. Cause us to go tonight from this place Rejoicing in Christ, remembering what we are, but also resolved that we will be more and more what Christ 
wants us to be and died for us to be. That sin will not have dominion over us. That sin and its defilement will not be something that we treat with carelessness. O Lord, have mercy upon us and lead us afresh to Christ and cause us to to trust in him and to uh, rest in him for salvation. Amen.